it's easy to be carried away by pessimism. About 800 years ago was a relatively Christendom age. The whole culture was practically Catholic, and there were only 393 million people in the entire world. In our own age, there's now about 7.5 billion people. That's well over 15 times as many people. In a culture that's openly hostile to God and to Christianity, it seems ironic that at a time in the world's history when there are more people than there have ever been, more souls to be won over either to God or to Satan, that the machinations of Satan seem to be prevailing over the providence and the mystery and the plan of God. However, things are not always as they appear to be. We know that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and he desires all to come to salvation. Omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, and desires all to come to salvation. So he knows when and where to give grace to each person to bring them to himself. The only thing that can stop his providence in bringing those souls to himself is our own wills. But in the grand scheme of things, God knows exactly what he's doing. He saw everything from before he created anything. So to place our utter trust in God, in his plan, in his providence, is the wisest move we can make. Despite how things appear, I warn us to not give in to this pessimism. God is greater than all evil. We should have faith in him. And I think one of the best ways to grow in our faith in him is to look at his work already. Let's look at man's situation before Christ came. One theologian writes, in the case of the non-redemption of humanity, not only would a single individual or single individuals miss their original destiny, as in the case of angels, but an entire species of creatures and the species that is the linking point of all creation would miss their eternal destiny. That's a pretty complex statement. He's comparing and contrasting the case of humanity and the angels. Angels just individually fell. They didn't fall all as a species. But mankind, in the one sin of Adam and Eve, the entire species was closed off from its eternal destiny, from heaven itself. There is no single person that could find its end, could find its destiny and happiness in heaven when one sin was committed. And what's more is humanity is the center of creation. It's the only creature that has one foot in the visible world and the invisible world. It's the linking point of all creation. Angels are in the spiritual realm, but it's humanity that's one foot in the material and one foot in the spiritual. It's our job to bring this world, this visible universe and creation to the Lord. And by man sinning and losing the entire species of mankind, this entire part of the universe is closed off to God's intention, to his glory. The entire realm of mankind, the entire universe, was taken away from God in its entirety. 
things looked pretty bleak. Then we look at the way in which God chose to redeem man. We look at the crucifixion. It's interesting that on this great feast where we celebrate the triumph of Jesus and his kingship over all, we turn to the darkest moment, apparently, of Christianity, which is when God became man, but men put Christ to death. We look at this exchange that he has with Pilate. It looks very bleak, but again, things are not always as they appear to be. We hear that Jesus states his kingdom does not belong to this world. He says the nature of his kingship is to come into the world and testify to the truth. The very word used there for testify is the same word with which we derive martyr. It's to give witness, to bear witness, to testify. It's to become a martyr to the truth. It's through his death that he ultimately points to the one divine truth. And furthermore, we can look at the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is just incredible. And this chapter of Daniel is the most written about chapter with the verses that are most written about in the entire Old Testament. It deals with this title, Son of Man. We read that the one like a son of man received dominion, glory, and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. This mysterious son of man figure is a conundrum, and it must have been to the Jews, because we saw this ancient of days who represents God, but who is this son of man who receives all dominion and kingship? The Jews believed in one God. Who is this mysterious other figure called the Son of Man? How could he be ruling over everything if there's only one God and only God has dominion over everything? Because of this conundrum, this mystery, so much has been written on this one chapter and this particular verse of who this Son of Man is. But all of our questions, the avoidance of pessimism, but more importantly, what we are called to do in the midst of being part of this kingdom of Jesus reigning over the entire universe, what is our calling? What is our job in the midst of all of this? And it's actually answered in the book of Daniel. We hear that the Son of Man received dominion, glory, and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. Now listen to this. This is just a little bit later in the same chapter. The horn, which is an evil ruler, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came, again, God the Father, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints received the kingdom. Then listen to this, just three verses later. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Does that sound familiar? It's the same everlasting kingdom and dominion in all peoples, nations, and tongues that were given to the Son of Man 
whose Christ is now given to the saints of the Most High. So there's an identity crisis here. Who is it? Is it the Son of Man who receives all of these things, or is it the saints of the Most High? And of course, in Catholicism, the answer is always both and. So it's, it's both the Son of Man and the saints of the Most High receive this kingdom. And it's through suffering. The triumph is promised, but not this side of the grave. So just as we see the great triumph of God over sin and death that liberates the entire realm of the material world from the tyranny of Satan by delivering all of mankind over to redemption, this place that was the abode and dominion of Satan before Christ came and freed us from sin and death, just as through the Son of Man this entire realm and dominion was restored to God, so too his work is continued in the saints of the Most High. And the saints are those who, just like the Son of Man, testify to the truth. And Jesus even continues in his discussion with Pilate. He says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So when we prove ourselves to be saints of the Most High, it's the fact that we testify to the truth and that those of us who belong to the truth, that we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. So it's that simple. We also have a task in the midst of this kingdom. We are not just small, lowly subjects in the midst of the kingdom of Christ as he reigns king of the universe, but we also have a role to testify to the truth, to witness, to be martyrs to the truth, and to extend his kingdom and his reign in the midst of our own lives. Remember, when we're baptized, we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. One of the ways in which we manifest this kingship is whatever we have dominion over, we hand back to God. For those of you who are married, your children, how you raise them, that's your little portion of the kingdom. Your job is to make Christ reign in whatever dominion you have on this earth. So you participate in the handing over of the visible material world to the Lord. That's your job as kings and priests. You actually do this when you go to work and you offer your work as an offering to the Lord. You can do this each hour of the day. Just offer a Hail Mary on the hour and offer that hour of work to the Lord. When you go and you take your kids to sporting events or to school, that you remind them to offer their day, their activities to the Lord so that they can sanctify that portion of creation so that we remember who is king of the universe, who's king over our lives. It's through these little offerings that we make the kingdom of God present in our entire world. And of course, it's not lost on us that Thanksgiving is coming, so perhaps family tensions rise a little bit we always have some odd aunts and uncles or difficulties with parents or nieces, nephews, our own children, whatever it may be. But it's a great opportunity to testify to the truth. And I'm not saying you should beat them over the head with the Bible, not at all. But it's through our standing up for who Jesus Christ is when there's an encroachment upon whatever our faith may be, our faith in Christ, 
when someone takes the name of the Lord in vain and we simply calmly say, would you not do that again, please? Whatever little subtle ways that we can love our family members who may have gone astray, we can testify to the truth. And the best way we can do this is to make good preparation. So if you know there's a difficult family member that you'll be seeing for Thanksgiving, offer a decade of the rosary for them before you go to your family gathering or a whole rosary if you have time. One of the best ways to have good conversations with the people that we struggle with is to pray for them beforehand and to love them in that moment beforehand so that we can bring the love of Jesus Christ to them in the moment we encounter them. So all of those are ways in which we can make known the kingdom of Jesus Christ to the world and hand that dominion over to Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's interesting. The only question that Pilate asks that Jesus never answers actually comes in the next line of the gospel. So Jesus says, this is why I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Do you know what Pilate's next line is? What is truth? That's his very next line. What is truth? And I think this is the only question that Jesus does not answer because it's an entirely wrong question. The question is not what is the truth. It's who is the truth. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That our mission here is to remind people who are wondering what the truth is that it's not a phrase. It's not a word. It's not even a law. The truth is Jesus Christ himself. He is the answer to every question in every human heart. That's the meaning that we witness to when we encounter one another, when we encounter those who have gone astray. That Jesus is the truth. Now, I don't know if it'll come to it in our lifetime. I presume it could. What witnessing to the truth might mean for some of us. It might be pretty severe. We might get to imitate our Savior in many ways. But I want to end with this beautiful line from 2 Corinthians reminding us that things are not always as they appear to be. For this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, to the things that For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We turn to our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, and with other confidence and hope and faith in him, who has dominion and glory and power for all eternity, amen. We turn to him with our hope and our faith, knowing that he has already conquered the world, and we ask for him to continue to conquer the world in our hearts and in those that we encounter.